Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. If you weren't here last week, um, I, I shared a, a little bit of my journey with my dad, um, and that uh, specifically a couple of years ago that I asked for just one gift from him for Christmas. If you were here last week, you'll remember that. And it was a, an NLT Daily Walk Bible that I just said, it's in the mail, and all I want for Christmas is for you to read it along with me, and let's just talk about whatever comes up, questions, concerns, ideas, observations, whatever it is, let's just do that. And uh, we had an incredible year doing that. And after about 10 or 11 months, uh, as kind of chance would have it, I got to go also on a vacation with my dad that afforded me seven days of of, uh, uninterrupted time with my dad, three hours each morning. And I shared last week that on morning four or five, uh, for the first time in my life, I had clarity on where my dad stood before the Lord as he had just shared that I've trusted in what Christ did for me on the cross. And it was uh, such an encouraging moment in time for me. Few of you have come up and kind of talked to me more about that and, and wanted to know maybe you're in similar situations and any kind of tips or ideas that maybe I had. There were three of you that specifically asked, hey, that was day four or five. What were the last couple days like? Well, here's what was awesome. The last two or three days that we were together, my dad started asking tons of questions about heaven. It was like once we had kind of settled this, his gaze turned immediately towards heaven and he just started peppering me with questions. So I was like, great, let's open up our Bibles and let's just kind of study the scriptures together. And we had a blast over the next two to three days. So much so that a few weeks later I said, I just want one gift for Christmas and it's in the mail, and it's Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, Dad, and here's what I want us to do. Let's just have our Bibles open, and let's read this book together, and let's see what happens. And for about the last uh, year, we have had a blast talking about heaven, keeping our gaze there, and every now and then I'll get a call from my dad going, whoa, whoa, did you know that a new heaven is coming, and it's going to be right here on earth? And I was like, yes, that's awesome, let's go. I was out at my dad's house in September, kind of filing my late return after, and uh, I filed for extension. And I hear my dad on the phone. He's always talking to clients. And at one point I stop and, he, and I'm kind of listening to him. He goes, well, Jim, I, I think what Paul's saying is that we're going to have new bodies too. And I'm like, who is my dad? What kind of accounting advice are you giving over there? And it was awesome. We've been having a blast doing that. There's an old adage that goes something like this. Don't be so eternally minded. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. I don't, have you heard that before? I just want to tell you it's unbiblical. Colossians 3, Paul says this, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You set your minds on those things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. I believe that it's the men and women who are so heavenly minded that actually end up doing the most earthly good. If you look in our land today, uh, I think everyone, believers, non-believers alike would agree that uh, Christianity's on the decline. 
And uh, I'm sure there are lots of reasons for that. A couple of you even sent articles to me about Tim Keller, who wrote a great article in The Atlantic recently about that. And he talks a little bit about something that I'll reference today. But I love what C.S. Lewis said. You want to look for what's causing the decline. C.S. Lewis said it this way. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Now, I'm sure that, like you, um, I can find myself blaming others for the decline of Christianity in our land. I can point to laws, I can point to leaders, I can point to any number of other things. But I think at the end of the day, we have no need to look further than to ourselves. Too many of us have gotten comfortable here and we've forgotten that this isn't our home. Too many of us have gotten comfortable here that we forgot that we've been placed on mission. Too many of us have gotten comfortable here and we've forgotten that we've been forgiven and that that demands a response for us. And so our love has grown cold and our actions betray the love that we've been shown by our savior. And I have a hunch that I'm not alone in that. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna shift our gaze to heaven. Now, we're not doing a full theology on heaven today. That's not what the pastor of Hebrews is, is gonna do in Hebrews 9, 23 through 28, but he is going to shift his audience's gaze to heaven. The, as he was writing a group of messianic Jewish believers, their issue was not comfort, their issue was discomfort. And in their discomfort and in their persecution, they started to forget that they were forgiven. They started to forget that they were given a mission. They started to forget some of the things that we forget today. And so as the pastor speaks to his audience's discomfort and instructs them by turning their gaze to heaven, we're gonna also allow it to instruct us in our comfort so that we will rightly gaze what Christ has done for us so that we can persevere here and now, just like our pastor was pushing his audience to do. So let's turn to Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28. Let's turn our gaze towards heaven and read this passage. Verse 23, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We've been in a section of Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 that continues to get richer and richer. And we said it last week, it's a mosaic 
that is just laying out the, the beauty of the new covenant. And each week we're just kind of grabbing a tile and taking a look at it. And this week's tile is one that's gonna direct us to things not of this world, but are true in all of eternity. And so we're gonna move through these six verses in couplets and we're gonna look, if it's helpful to you, at Christ's heavenly sanctuary. We're gonna look at Christ's eternally effective sacrifice and then we are gonna look at Christ's second coming. All the while, digging into eternal truths to help sharpen our perseverance today. Let's, let's dive in to where Christ's sanctuary is today. Thus, it begins in verse 23. This is referring back to some of the, kind of the, the, the Old Testament, the old temple, the, the tabernacle. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now that verse is probably a little confusing to you, at least, honestly, I actually kind of is. I hope it's actually a little confusing to you because it took me about 20 reads to kind of go, what exactly are you saying? But I think all that the pastor is saying here is that if the lesser things of the old covenant required a sacrifice, how much more so should the new covenant require an even better sacrifice? Is that you tracking with me? If the Old Testament required sacrifice, if it required blood, then it would make sense that the new covenant also would require blood and that it would require an even greater sacrifice than what we had seen before. But let's keep digging in, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. He hasn't entered into an earthly tabernacle, an earthly sanctuary. Those are just copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There's some clauses in there that start to, I won't say get in the way, but I would say underline the main idea here, which is Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, let me give you a little Old Testament imagery. In the, in the Old Testament tabernacle, temple days, we've talked about it. There, a priest, one day a year, could get into the presence of God. And this was kind of a, a huge day in the life of Israel each year. And, and the priest would walk in and, and, and he would be fully clothed, robes, all of that stuff. And he would have a rope tied to him with bells on it so that... If for some reason the priest had not ritually purified himself and falls dead in the presence of God and the bell stopped jingling, that they could pull out his dead body. It's that was a little bit of the image that likely happened from time to time. But under the new covenant, our high priest, Jesus, has entered into heaven. He's pierced the veil. He's gone to the Holy of Holies and the analogy may fall short a little bit, but it's like he has a rope that comes to us and he pulls us up. Though we were once dead, he has made us alive. He pulls us up into the heavenly sanctuary, a little visual of what Christ is doing on our behalf, a little picture of the gospel. And it says, here he is in the heavenly sanctuary, appearing in the presence of God. And then don't miss those last three words of verse 24, on our behalf. 
Let's stop and kind of shift our gaze to heaven for a second and think about the magnitude of that sentiment. Just a couple chapters prior in Hebrews 7, 25, the pastor has told us Jesus is, lives still today always to make intercession for us on our behalf. We keep saying it. Jesus' work on the cross, his atoning work is finished. He said so himself on the cross. Yet today he still works, he still lives to make intercession on our behalf. For the believer in the room, Christ is praying for you and interceding for you right this very second. Rest in that. Now you look in a room this size and and I can see certain faces and I know some of maybe what's going on a little bit. Obviously don't know everything, but you do. You know what's going on in your own life and in your own heart. You know what is, uh, and Jesus certainly knows all that is happening. And so think about it for a second. Ponder, what might Jesus be interceding for you on your behalf right now? Is there a trial that you're working through, a trials that you're going through right now? Consider what Jesus might be doing, how he might be praying for your steadfastness and perseverance amidst that. There are temptations coming your way. Well, ponder, rest in that Christ is praying for your strength amidst those struggles. If you're struggling to be on mission here, he intercedes on your behalf, praying that your heart would be stirred to love and good deeds. He is actively working on your behalf. No one else may notice or see you or understand anything that you're going through, but in the best sanctuary of them all, in the heavenly sanctuary, Christ sees you, and he notices you. And as we said last week, that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for your entire lifetime. He sees you and notices you and intercedes for you. Now, for some of you, that's probably a deeply comforting truth. And for others of you, that might cause you to wiggle a little bit going, just how much does he see? How much is he noticing right now? There's a lot of things that I've been trying to frankly stay hidden. Does he know my failures? Does he know my sins? That thought's terrifying. And the answer to those things is yes, he knows those as well. But as it says in 1 John 2, 1, all the encouragement that we have, it's, it's, it's meant for us so that we may not sin. But it says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is one who pleads your case before a judge. So every time you mess up before the righteous judge, your advocate, Jesus Christ, keeps reminding that one I've paid for, that sin I've paid for. And so in the heavenly sanctuary, turn your gaze there for a second, Jesus is interceding and advocating for you every single moment of your lifetime for every believer in the room. Friends, you are not alone. And there is a love embedded in all of that that is more than you and I can even grasp here and now today 
Christ at work for us in the heavenly sanctuary. How can he do that? How was he able to do that? What, how is he able to, to, to stand and, and, and advocate for us even in our sin? Well, let's read about it. Verse 25 and verse 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. The high priest had to bring in animal blood in order to, to cover sins. But then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he had to do it one time. His sacrifice was eternally effective. If not, he would have had to come, as the, as the pastor makes the argument, he would have had to come since the foundation of the world, yearly, to keep offering himself as a sacrifice for the people. But his sacrifice is so eternally effective, it took just one time. And it happened at the end of the ages, which in this instance is referring to his incarnation, his appearing, his death in his resurrection. That's when it happened. I love one of my favorite commentators on Hebrews, a guy named George Guthrie said it this way, Christ's sacrifice was so superior that it is able to reach back to the time of creation, think Genesis 3, all the way forward to the time of consummation, think the end of Revelation, and to fully cleanse all the people of God in between, of which you're included which means from your first breath until your final one. Jesus' sacrifice one time is enough to cover all that you do in this lifetime to separate yourself from God. Jesus has paid for it. He has put away sin, it says in verse 26. And it's, it's a phrase, I love it, but I'm also like, one of the things I love to do is interpret scripture with scripture. Let me just put a little extra punch on what it means that when Jesus says he put away sin, because this is all over your Bible. In Micah, it says his sins, our sins have been cast deep into the sea. Isaiah says cast behind his back. He remembers them no more. Jeremiah says, though the sins made a scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. They should be blotted out, utterly destroyed, removed as far as the east is from the west. Canceled, set aside, nailed to a cross, put away sin on our behalf. Friends, that is the gospel. We needed someone that could put away our sins. Scripture tells us all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, the wages of our sin is death. That is what we have earned in this lifetime. And yet verse 26, the gospel message yet again right here in Hebrews it's been put away by his sacrifice. All you and I have to do is believe it in our heart, profess it with our lips that Christ died for our sins, that he too put away ours, trust in what he did for us on the cross, and we shall be saved. Paul says it this way, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Though he knew no sin, he was sinless, but he did this so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I believe the people that understand this, the eternal effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice for us, I believe those are the people that are most effective in this world. 
those that understand the degree to which they've been forgiven are the ones that then go on to love to similar degrees. Any of you all know my friend Cynthia Rogers here in the room today? Hey. Well, if you don't know Cynthia's story, she gave me permission to share a bit of it this morning. If you're not one of the ones that whooped, go meet her. She'd love to probably tell you more. But Cynthia um, grew up uh, with absent parents. Uh, and in that place, um, another family member kind of came along and, and abused her, which would lead to other abuse in kind of her high school years. And as other people were kind of making destructive things, decisions that were hurting Cynthia in due time, Cynthia began to reciprocate. And some of the same pain that had been doled out to her, she began to make some really tragic decisions of her own, so much so that she phrased it like this, that God showed me after many years that I had become what I had hated. And it wasn't until one night that she found herself alone in a motel room pregnant that she began to understand the depths at which Christ was pursuing her amidst her sin. Now, I'm not mentioning her, and y'all weren't whooping because of what she's been forgiven for, per se. But I think we cheered her name, and I'm sharing her this morning because of how well she loves people. There's a reason why, like, we have trouble shutting the building down at 10 o'clock on Tuesday nights because there are typically a one or two or three, if not a whole uh, group of women surrounded her, like, after the night of region, just being comforted, shared for, prayed for, shepherded by my friend Cynthia. He, she who has been forgiven much loves so much. And there's a reason why. People run to her in their lowest moments. And there's also a reason why some of those same people run back to her to celebrate the breakthroughs that God brings through into their life. Cynthia has been forgiven much, and so she loves much. And it's been changing our church for many years, if you haven't noticed I think if we're being honest, some of us kind of think that God's lucky that we're on his team. We may not say it quite like that. We definitely wouldn't say it how kind of the Pharisee says it in Luke 18, that God, I thank you that I'm not like the extortioners. I'm not like the adulterers. I'm not like the unjust. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm not like Parker. I'm not like Cynthia. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. But I'm convinced that some of the most dangerous people in the world today are Christians who have forgotten that they've been forgiven. The core truth of the gospel is that one man laid down his life for our benefit. And when we forget that we've been forgiven, our friends and our neighbors typically don't see us laying down our lives on their behalf. And there's other things but when we fail to do that, we gut the gospel of like its core foundation, 
That's, that's what men and women do for others, is we lay down our lives, modeling after the one who laid down his life for all. Paul never got over the fact that he was the chief of sinners, and I believe it's one of the reasons why he was so effective for the kingdom. And so how about you? Have you forgotten that you've been forgiven? Like I'm telling you, this is how we will change our land is reminding ourselves what Christ has done for us on the cross so that we might respond well in love. And let me be really clear. By love, I don't mean we just tolerate and we don't just enable and we just say, hey, go your own way. It's not just blind shepherding. We shepherd it according to God's word. We love people in light of eternity, not what they think is in their best interest today. That is what it means to love much, is to shepherd according to this. But As Galatians 6 reminds us, if a friend is caught in a spiritual trespass, you and I, who are spiritual, who have been rescued, who have met the one that has laid down their life, we are to come alongside others and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. It's what we do. And so it's effective for us to turn our gaze to heaven to where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because his sacrifice was eternally effective. He doesn't need to get back up and come back down year after year. It is an eternally effective sacrifice. He did it. He laid his own life down so that we might imitate him. That changed this land. And that's the call on you and me. We remember that Christ advocates and intercedes for us in the heavenlies. And he's able to do that because he is the faithful lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the pastor says one more thing about eternity. Let's focus on the end. That's where the passage goes next in verse 27. It says this, and it says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Do you know you have a reservation with God? You have a set time where you will appear face to face with him and give an account for whether or not you have trusted in what he did for you on the cross. That appointment is set. You don't know the time or hour. He does, but it is fixed. And you're closer to it than when this message first started. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin this time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In Christ's first coming, that's when he came to deal with sin through his sacrificial death. In his second coming, he will come and bring salvation, complete deliverance to his believers from this fallen, sinful world. It will be the greatest day for believers and an absolute horror for all others. 
And so it's motivating to think about the end. It's always just motivating to go, okay, that I wanna be ready for that day. So what does that mean for how I need to be today? Let's work it back. And the pastor gives us a really convicting phrase at the end of it to guide us, to motivate us, to go, this is what it looks like. He says, he's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I look at that phrase and I'm like, there's just no way. That marks all of my life. Now, by the grace of God, I I hope that it marks some of my life. It's probably similar for you, but there's probably some in here that that doesn't mark at all because at some level and at some level in our comfort, we, we like what we got a lot of times or we think if we just have a little bit more time, we'll eventually like what we got. And we become earthly minded. We don't long for heaven. And because of that, we misunderstand what awaits us. And as we misunderstand what awaits us, we misappropriate the time, talent, and treasures that the Lord has called us to steward here and now today. And if enough of us do it in the room, if enough of us misunderstand what awaits, misappropriate our time, there will be a decline in our sphere of Christ's transforming power. And if enough of us do it, it begins to change cities and counties and states and countries. And we begin to trivialize our faith in such a way that we have the appearance of godliness, but we ultimately deny its power and we deny its purpose. And we might half-heartedly pray with kind of one eye open, Lord, come quickly. The scriptures tell me, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if you want to wait till after the big game today, I want to see if the Eagles end up winning. Or I'd really like to get married. I'd really like to kind of spend that bonus that we just got. I'd really like this. I'd really like that. And then the prayers get at the end of the day in our heart, really me-centered. And we lack the faithful desperation that we're called to eagerly await Christ's second return. It is coming. One of the groups of people, one of the groups of Christians who I think most eagerly await are the ones who have kind of suffered the most here and now. Do you have anyone in mind that that marks? Maybe it's been a disease or disability. Maybe it's been life circumstances. Maybe absent parents. Maybe absent spouses that have walked. Maybe it's any number of other tragic circumstances that have, that have come your way. Loss of family, loss of children, loss of parents, loss of siblings, any number of other things. Think of someone that that kind of marks their life. And think about whether they're ones that you would go, but man, they, they eagerly await. And, and when you've got that person in your mind, I want you to go, I want you to think, don't they... Don't they pray differently? Like there is a sense of urgency and desperation in their prayer that I don't know I've ever come close to reaching. Don't they love people and have compassion for people differently? 
It's like they've realized in their discomfort, this is not my home. Please, Lord, tell me there's a better home. And then they see it in the scriptures. Oh, there is a better home. And there is a longing for them, for that home that has completely transformed their life. If that's you, I, I first just wanna say, I'm so sorry for what life has thrown at you. But the second thing I wanna just tell you is, will you keep leading the rest of us? We need to hear your prayers and we need to keep seeing how you love other people so well. It reminds me and my friends, how we too are supposed to be eagerly awaiting the return of our King. Thank you for what you're doing and we need to keep seeing more of it and so thank you. Now, that's what our pastor did, put our gaze on heaven. One way that I thought about moving through this passage but I'll close with it is, the word appear shows up three times. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, and you can underline it. But it's a really powerful representation of how Christ has been showing up on our behalf every step of the way. While we lived under the penalty of sin, Christ once and for all at the end of the ages came and put away sin by the sacrificing himself on the cross and the penalty of sin lifted. Today he appears before the Father. While we struggle still with the power of sin out there and in here, he appears before the Father interceding and advocating on our behalf so that we might endure through the power of sin. And then one day he will appear a third time. And those that have been faithfully awaiting Believers of Christ will be completely removed from even the very presence of sin. That's a better covenant. Those are better promises that await the believer. And my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would be eagerly awaiting that day. As John says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Put in the words of our pastor of Hebrews, so that when he appears, we may draw near and not drift. I want us, I want this church, I want us ready for that day. And my hunch tells me, if we're ready for that day, the name of Christ is gonna look a lot differently in our land even still today. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.